Cool. All right, while we do that, uh, it is time for me to introduce our guest speaker and musician. Uh, Scott Darlow reached out to us about a year ago and asked if we'd be open to him coming back for a visit. Scott was with us five years ago. I can't believe it was actually that long. And it was a really important Sunday to be blessed by his ministry to hear the things he had to say and have our own faith challenged and inspired by that story. Scott is passionate about Jesus and an uh, Indigenous activist. He regularly speaks across Australia about faith, culture and history, racial tolerance, harmony and important social matters. He's a singer and a muso who has sold more than 50,000 albums worldwide and toured Australia, Asia and the USA. In fact, he's in the middle of a huge tour at the moment. But before I bring him on stage, I just want to reiterate what Josh, uh, Jeff said a few weeks ago. The timing of this wasn't planned to coincide with the referendum. You're free to vote whatever way you believe is right, and even though Scott will most likely tell us how he's going to vote, you can take what he has to say, think it through on your own, and vote in the Voice to Parliament referendum next Saturday. But apart from all of that, what Scott shares today will help encourage you in your faith in all sorts of ways. He has important things to share that impact our life and your faith. He is a great guy, a faithful follower of Christ, and a talented musician. At the end of the service today, you have an opportunity to give a special offering to support Scott's ministry, so keep that in mind. Uh, But would you take a moment to please welcome Scott with me this morning to the stage. Thank you. How are you all going all right? Yeah. I don't know about this church at 9.30 in the morning business. It's like when you get these worship leaders or these men's groups or whatever, and they're like, oh, yeah, let's have, let's have a men's breakfast breakfast, you know, like a men's... I'm like, I'm pretty sure Jesus would have done brunch. <laughs> anyway. Hey, uh, thank you for having me. My name's Scott Darlow. I play music for a living. Uh, so my job, I make records. Oh, I write songs. I make records. Do you remember what a record is? Yeah? Anyone? Records? Yeah? Do you remember what a CD was? Anyone know what a tape is? Does anyone here remember what a VHS video machine was? Remember them? Yeah, that's what Essendon supporters watch finals on, is VHS. Um, that, that joke's funny because it's true. <laughs> where's all the kids Where's all the kids here who are under 18? Where's the 18 and unders? We got, a, we got many of them here? Right, so just so you fellas know, Essendon haven't won a final since you were born. Right, that's, that's what's happening there. Um, for those that are not AFL fans, I apologise for my jokes. I'm still grieving a little bit because honestly I thought the Cats were going to go back to back and then we just got bashed by injuries and Collingwood pretty much cheated their way through the finals. Anyway, I'm not going to go on. <laughs> Help me, Jesus. Anyway, um, so yeah, I'll play music. Now, it wasn't always this way. I started out, um, I finished high school myself. I was 17 years old. I was quite young and my dad said, listen, mate, you go to uni or you get a job. They're your two choices. There's none of this having a gap year rubbish, right? So... I got a job at Kmart because I wanted money. Um, I was working in the warehouse, unloading trucks and loading trucks, you know. But the problem was it was a colour-coded warehouse. I'm colourblind. And it was the worst week of my life. I'd do, this is a true story. I had guys coming up going, mate, can you get those nine yellow boxes? I'm like, no, not really. Um, so I quit and Dad says, well, what do you want to do, mate? I said, I don't know. He goes, what do you enjoy? I said, I really like holidays. He goes, what else do you love? I said, I love being finished at three because when you're at warehouse, you finish at six. At school, you finish at three. I thought, you know what, I'll go and learn how to be a school teacher. How hard could that be? <laughs> we got any teachers here today or former teachers here? <laughs> oh, there's a few of you. 
I did it for two and a half. I, you know, I went and studied a Bachelor of Education. I, was, I taught for two and a half years, right? And I thought it was going to be really easy. Turns out it's quite hard. Well, you've got to do this thing called preparation. You can't just rock up. You've got to write reports. Teachers, where are you at? The 200. Who here gets to report season and you just almost feel like, you, you're, like you're unraveling? Because you've got to. First year, I had to write 200 reports. And the principal of that school went off his head. Because I just used control C, control V. <laughs> this 200 reports just said, your child has ability, but is a bit feral. You do get 12 weeks a year holiday, that's true, but you need 10 of them for therapy because the kids drive you stupid. And if the kids don't drive you stupid, their parents drive you stupid. If the parents don't drive you stupid, the other teacher drives you stupid. Anyway, I did, it for, I did it for two and a half years and then I quit. Um, I quit because... Uh, and I used to always make... When I was explaining my... Because I, I think it's important to understand the background of you know of what I'm doing here with you fellas. Like, that's why I'm telling these stories. But when I used to tell this story, I'd be like... I'd make a joke here. I'd be like, oh yeah, I quit because I learned if you lock one misbehaving student in a cupboard for only one hour and it's a joke I never locked a kid but I told that joke at a very expensive school called Wesley and a first year teacher was dialing triple triple zero before I even got to the end of the joke so what really happened was my dad passed away now growing up my dad had been my absolute hero like just legend Uh, I grew up in Hong Kong for six years all my primary school years I lived in Hong Kong because my dad was a social worker for the Salvation Army running refugee camps while my mother went into the walled city for those that are old enough to remember the walled city in Hong Kong, it was a, a city that uh, triads ran. British government ignored it, Chinese government ignored it, and triads ran it, and illegal immigrants spent their whole lifetimes living in this city, and it was just a city of vice, and um, it, was, it was crazy. But mum went in there and started a kindergarten, a school, a primary school for kids, because they weren't getting educated. Um, you know, so I, I grew up with a really kind of a, a deep understanding that we are so fortunate by being born in this country. And let's be honest, none of us chose it, and none of us earned it. We just get to sit here and live in what I think is the greatest country on the planet. Right? I've been to 39 countries. I lived in Hong Kong for six years. I lived in America for two years after I got married. And I'm convinced that this is the best country on the planet. And I'm not saying that because I'm some dumb bogan in Australia. <laughs> no offence if you're a dumb bogan. Um, I'll get onto it why we're, we're the greatest country in the world. But uh, I'll get onto it a bit later. But the truth of it is that I... Um, my dad was amazing. He, I, I idolised him. If you've ever been to Kmart, see, we came back from Hong Kong and he ran all the social welfare for the Salvation Army all on the east coast of Australia. If you've ever been to Kmart and put a present under the tree at Christmas time for people who are struggling, this is his idea. They still run it. He did a number of things that changed people's lives. I watched my dad change people's lives every day and I just idolised him. Now, in his 40s, it turns out he had a breakdown. He didn't... Some stuff had happened to him as a kid. And he never told anybody. It was quite traumatic. And I think any sort of trauma like that that's significant, if you don't deal with it, it grows. And you end up, you know, ends up breaking you. And in his 40s, he had a breakdown. And um, nobody knew at first because he was unbelievably intelligent. By the time he died, he'd done a Bachelor of Education degree. He'd also done a social work bachelor's. He'd done a master's in social work and he was halfway through a PhD. He had an IQ that was through the roof. He was the smartest, funniest. He was amazing. But he starts unravelling, and he's, at first he's trying to keep it secret because, you know, didn't want anyone to know. I guess his pride and whatever else. But it all came out, I found out, um, just after high school finished, I found out that he'd been cheating on my mum. Now, my mum was a Baptist pastor in the end. She was a, you know, godly woman. She had no idea, and I, I had the task of telling her, which was horrific. Turns out he was gambling heaps. He was drinking way more than anyone knew, doing prescription drugs. All this stuff comes out. I found out all about it, and I told my mum because I had to and our family just exploded 
And Dad, it was almost like he was relieved he didn't have to hide it anymore and he just unraveled. And with a few short years, he was dead. He died at the age of 57 of alcoholism. His pancreas stopped working. Now, this is a man who had run a rehab center for alcoholics. It was and continues to be one of the tragedies of my, of my story. Now, I got married quite young. I was doing a teaching round. You know when you have uni students who come to your schools to try to learn how to be teaching? You know them ones? The ones the year nines try to break them and make them cry? I was doing that and I saw one of my students. One of my students, actually, she said to me, one of my music students, she said, oh, I've got an older sister who's about your age and she's a Christian too. You should meet her. And I'll be honest with you, I thought, gee, if you, if you need your year eight sister to set you up, you're probably a bit of a woofer. And, but I saw her in the car park. I was like, oh, that girl's amazing. So I went up and did my best ever pickup line. How's it going? <laughs> she's like, fine. <laughs> and we started communicating and a year and five months later we were married. Got married straight away. We'd been married for one year and she says, oh, do you want to have kids? I said, yes, because then I knew she couldn't get away. Once she got kids, that's it, you know, because she could do better. And um, but anyway, we've been married for 21 years, got three children, and I'm so unbelievably fortunate because I'll tell you the truth, I didn't know what I was doing. I was so young, but it turns out that she's the greatest girl in the whole world and I'm unbelievably blessed. She's the kindest, smartest, funniest, most amazing person ever. Um, and they're good, you know. Anyway, so dad dies. I've just started working as a teacher. I've become a father myself. I've got a six-week-old kid and I'm a husband. So everything is changing rapidly. And I had this moment that just changed my life forever. So I'm standing at my dad's funeral. And before anyone rocked up, it was this tiny little church in Melbourne. Before anyone rocked up, they what they did, they said, listen, what we're going to do is we're going to lift the lid of the coffin. You can view the body. It gives you closure. And then when they're gone, you, you know, when people get here, we'll shut it. And so I took, we took out to my brothers were there and, you know, dad's parents and, and I'm standing there holding my daughter. Her name's Kaya. She's 19 now. Going to uni, taking on the world. But back then, she's this six-year-old, six-week-old little baby. And I'm holding her because she's been crying. And I look at my dad and I look at my daughter and I have a... Well, two things happened that changed my story forever. And, and the first thing was I looked at my dad and I realised, just like I'm breaking my heart saying goodbye to him, one day my daughter will do the same thing for me because we were going to die. You know. And as the older we get, the more we realise it, don't we, as we start losing friends and family members and... And the thing I thought was, you know, when my time comes and I'm laying in a box, what will my daughter think of who I was? Like, what will she say about her dad? See, I love my dad. Like, you can probably tell just even from hearing me speak about him this morning. He's my best mate. I love him and I miss him every single day. But if I'm honest, and I've got to be, by the time he died, I'd lost some respect for him as a man because of the choices that he made in his journey. And that devastates me to say that out loud, but it's the truth. And I really thought about it. Well, my daughter, she's not going to care about how many streams I've had of my songs, or she won't care that I'm verified on Instagram, or she won't care how much money I've got in the bank. None of that stuff matters. She's going to care about, was my dad kind? Was he generous? How did he treat my mum? If he says he's going to do something, does he turn up and do it? Those are the things that matter, your character. Who you are is not what you do for a job, it's who, you know. And I, it was pretty confronting, because to be honest with you, I wasn't a great version of myself at that point. I knew I had a lot of work to do. The second thing that hit me is that life is all about currency. Now, when I talk about currency, you probably think I'm talking about money. And for a lot of people, money's their number one currency, right? Gets them out of bed in the morning, makes them choose the things they choose, do the things they do. But if I'm honest with you, it's probably the most fleeting currency. Because you're going to earn money, you're going to spend it, you're going to keep it, give it away, lose it, gamble it. It's real fleeting. For some people, the currency that drives them the hardest is their possessions, right? Like, you know, them fellas have got the big flash house and a big flash car, you know them ones? Now... I used to drive a Mazda 121. Do you remember them cars, the little pregnant roller skate looking things? I hated that car, but it was what we had. This one day I was in Melbourne, I was driving through a suburb called Brunswick, it's fairly closed in. 
was going down this street called Al- Albion Street. I was fanging down Albion Street. And this one fellow, he'd been in Australia from East Timor for two weeks. He went through a stop sign and smashed into the passenger side. Thankfully, no one was in that seat. Now, my neck was sore. I was freaked out because I just got crashed into it. But I was so happy because <laughs> that car was insured for three and a half thousand dollars. There's only, you know, your house burns down, you get an insurance check, you build another. There's only one currency that any of us have that we cannot play, replace and we cannot budget, and that is time. It's time. Now, if you ask any young people, and I, part of my day job, like I do the music thing now, I play in you know, festivals and I'm signed to a major label and all that sort of stuff, get played on the radio, but during the day, I sing and speak in 100 schools a year around Australia, playing music and talking to kids about stuff I'm passionate about, a bit like what I'm doing with you guys today. And I ask every single audience, because teenagers are so perceptive, the, uh, and the answer just, it just blows me away, right? I ask them every day, I go, out of all the adults you know, not, any, not, not just mum and dad, but anyone who's 18 and older, what percentage of them do you reckon go to work every day? They don't necessarily hate it, but they certainly don't love it. Oh, got to go to work. Ugh. Got to pay the bills. Ugh. You know. And every day, kids are telling me between 70 and 90%. That's what they observe. And I look at them and I go, do you reckon that's any way to spend your one true currency? Nah. And I stood at my dad's funeral and I realised, you know what, I'm teaching high school kids music and English, but I'm not really passionate about it. I'm just doing it to get paid every two weeks. Go surf somewhere different every ten weeks. So I quit. Now I realise that life, you know, and a lot of you more senior, experienced Australians in this room will know this, but I reckon a lot of what Australia... A lot of what life is about. I reckon it's three things. Number one, every single person in this room, when you were born, you were all given gifts. God has gifted all of you multiply. You've all got multiple gifts. Younger, younger people, you won't know what all your giftings are just yet, but I promise you got heaps of them. I knew I could play music from the age of five. Parents used to take me to the church at the Salvation Army, you know, with the brass band on stage. Remember that? The older people, remember the brass band would come around in the streets in the morning and wake you up? I used to get, because I used to sit in church, five years old, looking at the brass band on stage, going, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen, because I hadn't seen U2 or Pearl Jam yet. <laughs> and I begged my mum, I said, you've got to get me a trombone. I just thought it was so cool with the slide. And mum says, mate, your arm's that long. You're five years old. So they got me a cornet, which is like a trumpet for brass bands. The only way I can explain it is I could play it. By the time I was seven years old, I was playing in brass bands with fully grown adults. I got to grade four. There was a teacher at our primary school, Mr. Page. He was awesome, Mr. Page. He was so good. He used to teach grade six how to play guitar at lunchtime on a Wednesday. I harassed him till he let me join. Two weeks later, I could remember, still remember it. He was teaching them all how to play this Beach Boys song, Sloop John B, and I could play it. None of the grade six kids could play it, but I could play it. And I'm strutting around that school like a peacock, and then I got flogged. <laughs> Stop strutting. I got to uni and I found out that RMIT, where I went to uni, they'd lend you musical instruments for free, right? So I borrowed a tenor saxophone on a Monday because I always wanted to play saxophone. Taught myself how to play it in four days, never had a lesson, got a hundred bucks to play in a band on the Friday. I play piano, I've never had a lesson. Now, I'm not trying to take any credit for it. I got born and God just went, mate, you can play music. <laughs> Sick. Love it. You've all got multiple gifts, right? I never figured out till my thirties though, one of my giftings, I'm really good with people. I'm good with like talking and with, with relationships. I'm the only recording artist I know of who gets played on the radio all over Australia, doesn't have a manager. Right? So everybody else who does what I do, they've got a manager that does their business deals from. So what that means is if I earn a thousand dollars, that person takes two hundred of those thousand just for signing a bit of paper. So for me, my wife gets to take that two hundred dollars. <laughs> So there's three points here. Number one, what are you gifted in? Every single one of you. And you're never too old to find out your gifts. What has God given you? So try lots of things, right? Try lots of things. And if you figure out you might be gifted in something, work really hard at it. 
work really hard at it. I get frustrated. I'm not frustrated, but I always laugh when people go, Scott, your job is to play music and travel all over the world. You're so lucky. I go, yeah, I'm lucky, but do you know how hard I work to get this lucky? I practiced every single day after school for at least a couple of hours. I wasn't playing Fortnite. It's working. Young people, the only time success comes before work is in the dictionary. Write that down. Number one, what are you gifted at? Work real hard. Number two, are you passionate about anything on this planet? Is there stuff on this planet that when you think about it, your guts burn because you care so much? It might be the environment. It might be refugees. It might be music. It might be sport. It might be cooking or eating. (laughs) Number three, what if you could get paid money every single day to combine the thing you're gifted in with the thing you're passionate about? You put those two things together and that's your job and someone gives you money for it. So I decided, well, what am I gifted in? I'm good with music. I'm good with people. I'm good at storytelling. What am I passionate about? Well, I'm passionate about Australia. I love this country. But I'm also passionate about my people. Now, one of the things about me you may not realise if you've never met me or seen me play before is that I'm Aboriginal. And some people will be surprised by that because I've got fair skin. But it's one of those things if you have a mum or a dad or even a grandparent who's not Aboriginal, often you might look like that side of the family. So for me, my mum's Aboriginal, but my dad's not. Does that make sense? You look one way, but you feel another. You know, I look like I'm out of an Ikea catalogue in Sweden. That's why that joke's funny. Uh, but I'm an Aboriginal man. I have a lot of dark-skinned friends, family, cousins. The best way to describe it, I'm kind of like a reverse Oreo. I'm basically, you know what I am? I'm undercover sneaking around looking for racists. And I'm going to be honest with you people. I spend a lot of time in Queensland as a result. Um, I'm just truth-telling here today, people. Yeah passionate about my people, passionate about my culture. So I thought, well, what can I do to combine those things? And so I started ringing schools, and this is 19 years ago. I started ringing schools going, hey, um, I want to come and play music, talk about Aboriginal culture. You know, music's like the vehicle that connects me with the kids. And, and, and it wasn't that easy back then because it's a different country. The landscape of this country has changed dramatically in the last 19 years. But one school turned into three, turned into five, and now I sing and speak in over 120 schools a year all over Australia, the, the UK, Asia. Because this is a global story, our story. It's not unique to us. Anywhere where there's been colonisation, you see the, the, the things that we're living through in this country, just so you know. Nothing on this planet ever happens without a reason. Everything that you see, there's always a reason. Sometimes the reasons aren't obvious, but, you know... If you dig deep, if you research, if you look, I promise you, you'll find a reason for everything. And that is because God created this planet with order. He's a scientist. Right, so, so basically what I'm going to do today is I'm going to sing in a couple of songs in what is nothing more than a blatant attempt to get you to buy my album that will be out in three weeks' time. And, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Australia because I reckon this is the best country on the planet. Uh, did I mention that? Yeah, I did. All right, cool. Um, all right, cool. Get my hair out of my hair's a bit of a mess. I sometimes get my daughter to do a plait that goes over the back just to keep it out of my face. But then I was at a primary school the other day, and this one kid who's nine years old comes up to me at recess, goes, "Scott, you look like Thor," and I was so happy. I say, when I went home, I said to my wife, "Oh, this kid said I look like Thor," and my wife goes, "Yeah, he meant the drunk fat Thor out of that last Marvel film." It's not kind. <laughs> anyway, apologies for my hair. Um, Alright, so I've got an album coming out on October the 27th It's only a couple of weeks away now And we've been building to it for four months I've been on tour for three months I've driven around Australia I've driven 16,000 kilometres in the last three months Started in Melbourne Went to Tassie for a week And then went to Albury, Wodonga Went to Uluru in a bus with my band Drove from Uluru to Darwin Doing shows the whole way Schools, prison, pubs Drove from Uluru to Broome 
Spent five weeks driving down the west coast of Australia. Went from there to Sejuna, down to Port Lincoln, up to Adelaide, across the Nullarbor Plain. Uh, sorry, across from Adelaide to Melbourne, and then and now I'm in Cairns. And then the next three weeks I'll spend doing shows all the way down the east coast of Australia until the album launch on October the 28th. So, um, I've got a song out. Uh, at the moment it came out a couple of months ago. It's called Deadly Heart. And um, I thought I'd sing it for you. They've been stealing our sacred dreams for the longest time They've been taking our homes off of the bottom line These ancient songlines so full of pride They say that I should run now But here's one more try So for better or worse I'll stay by your side I'm walking this road with red dust in our eyes But I'll keep my word I'll throw away those lies You keep your promise To this deadly heart Deadly heart Breaking each other down for the longest time We've been building these walls only to divide I'm giving up my shame now There's no tears to cry We're coming back now Here's one more try So for better or worse I'll stay I'm walking this road with red dust in our eyes But I keep my word, I throw away those lies You keep your promise to this deadly heart Deadly, keep my promise to this deadly heart Keep my promise to this deadly heart Keep my promise to this deadly heart So for better or worse, I'll stay by your side I'm walking this road with red dust and I'll rise But I keep my word, I throw away those lies You keep your promise to this deadly heart You keep your promise to this deadly heart You keep your promise to this deadly heart Thank you. So uh, on the record that's coming out is, um, I think it's 10 songs or 11 songs. Um, I should know that, shouldn't I? 
all of them were written for the album except for the first song, which kind of kicked the record off. So what happened was during the pandemic, my mate Rusty rings me up, and everyone's got a mate like Rusty. Like, you love them, but they're a bit weird, you know? Like, he rings me up this one day, he goes, Hey, Darlo. That's how his voice is. I met an Aboriginal person on the train. His name's Neville. Do you know him? <laughs> no, but I know that you're enough, enough. Anyway, he rings me up during the pandemic, and this is what he says, right? This is, oh, you see, it's him. Hey, mate, how are you? The first thing out of his mouth, the problem with racists is that you can't see black in the dark. And I'm like, are you drunk? Now, what he was saying was actually really good. Anyone here ever had a time in your life where you were, you had an opinion about something, you knew what you thought, you were solid on it, but then you spent time with somebody with a different opinion and when they shared their stories and their journeys with you, you changed your mind on what you first thought. You ever had that happen? Yeah, that's called being educated, just so you know. Um, I have a lot of times in my life where people don't realise I'm Aboriginal and they'll say stuff. It's like they let their guard down, right? Because they think it's safe. Like if you put my name into Google and write Uber, Scott Darlow, Uber, you'll see all these stories come up because a few years ago, before the pandemic, I was in Townsville, just up the road from here. And I'd never been there before and I got out of the Uber. I got out of the airport, I went to get in my Uber and I'm all excited because I've never been there and I love going new places. Anyway, I said to the Uber driver, I said, hey, how's it going, mate? It's going good. I go, what's it like living in Townsville? I've never been to Townsville before. And this is what he said to me, word for word. He goes, Townsville's not bad, but it'd be heaps better if we could take all of these black such and such out the back and shoot them all. But we're not allowed to do that anymore, are we? And I'm like, what? And then he just unleashes, right? He just, just this racist filth. And I go, mate, I'm going to have to stop you because you're talking about my family. You're talking about me. You're talking about my friends. Now, I'll be honest, when I was 20, my response in that scenario, I would have flogged him. Right? But you get a bit older and you realise that's not going to do anything. It's not going to change. It's going to only make him think what he thinks even more and I'll probably get arrested. Now what I try to do is try to educate that fella. Right? So I spent 20 minutes asking him questions. When he told me lies, I'd correct him. Just asking him, you know, just trying to educate. We get to the end of the journey and I go, he looks at me and goes, you give me some stuff to think about today, Scott. Yeah, but whatever, you know. And I was wild. I did a video on my Instagram. It went viral. ABC shared it. Triple M shared it. Um, SBS. Uber rang me. They go, we fired that driver. And um, and I actually felt a little bit bad about that until I had some young Aboriginal girls reach out to me on Instagram and they DM me and they said, hey, listen, who is he? We don't want to get in his car. I thought, yeah, fair enough too. When I was younger, and some of you young people today, you might have experiences. Some of you older people probably had experiences and you know what I'm talking about, right? But you have experiences like that in this country because there are a lot of racists. And I joke about Queensland, but I've got to be honest with you guys, this is the most racist state in the country. Like I live in Melbourne and every time I come up here, it shocks me. It's like I'm stepping back in time. And I'm not trying to offend anyone with that comment. That's just my observation. But, you know, you have these... Uh, as a young fella, you'd have these experiences. You walk away from it. You go, this country sucks. It's full of racists and they're evil. They're just evil. And you get a bit older, right? You get to this stage of life where I'm more than halfway through, no doubt. And you realise 98% of those racists, they're not evil. You know what they are? They're dumb. They're uneducated. Do you know that it's proven scientifically aboriginal people we are the oldest most continuous living culture on this planet if you're not prepared to sit with us and listen and learn from our stories and our journey how dumb are you be like if yoda walked in here and you didn't want to talk to him for those of us that love star wars anyway when rusty explained it to him he's like oh yeah it's like a little plant sitting in a cupboard getting no sunlight slowly withering and dying i was like rusty that's real deep rusty goes i know so we're going to write a song called He Can't See Black in the Dark and Rusty said, give me money. (laughs) 
So Rusty got 10% of the royalties on this song, which I'm spewing about because I rang him up and I said, mate, I'm giving you 10% of the royalties. Every time he gets paid on the radio, he gets paid, you know. And he just laughed. He goes, ha, 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 you idiot, I would have taken five. <laughs> spewing. Anyway, I, you know, if you look at my, my history musically, I've done quite a few collaborations with different artists because I reckon... We're all family living here together, regardless of where you're from, regardless of where you were born. We're all family, we live here together. And there's a lot of people who are not Indigenous, but they get it. They're fighting the fight with us. We call them allies. And there's a lot of great allies out there. And so I wanted to record this song with a mate who's an ally. It's a shared story. It's a shared song. So I rang my mate. Some of you guys might know him. His name's Kenny. Kenny sings in a band called Birds of Tokyo. I sing in a band called Carnival. So Kenny did his bit, I did my bit, and we released this. And um, yeah, this, this came out a couple of years ago, but it's also on the record. It's called You Can't See Black in the Dark. Or as Rusty would say, you can't see black in the dark. Been here longer than time And our blood soaked into the earth below I can still see the line Kept us separated from each other That's the way it was In 67 my name Recognize, do you recognize the pain? You release from your shame While our kids are locked up like dog inside a cage I'm not blinded by the sins of the past We're burning, but we never struck a match We're gonna make a fire from this spark Gonna light it up, you can't see Black in the dark Another three years gone Still you take the land that you've been stealing from Digging into her soul Like our mother's nothing to you but a handful of coal All we own is time And all I hear is talk about the bottom line Have a look at the crimes Let the sons and daughters dying before their time Blinded by the sins of the past We're burning, but we never struck a match We're gonna make a fire from this spark Gonna light it up, you can't see Black in the dark I'm not blinded by the sins of the past We're burning, but we never struck a match We're gonna make a fire from this spark Gonna light it up, you can't see Black in the dark sleep with one eye open can I let go of the past shining bright and I won't stop faster than the speed of light into the blade you can't see black in the dark you can't see black in the dark you can't see black in the dark we're gonna light it up can't see black in the dark by the sins of the past We're burning But we never struck a match We're gonna make a fire From this spark Gonna light it up You can't see Black in the dark Thank you 
So it was pretty crazy when that song released. Um, I, I released it on like a Thursday, I think, and it got added to radio that day all over the country and it got smashed on the radio. I think by, by like later that night it was charting on the iTunes charts in the top ten. And, and I got a phone call at 11 o'clock that night from a guy called Michael Gidinski, who a lot of you would know Michael. He was the owner of Mushroom Music, started Frontier Touring, most powerful man in music. Now, we've been mates for a number of years. My publishing is already signed to Michael with Mushroom Music. But he rings me up and he goes, Scott, I love the new song. I said, oh, cool. He goes, I love it so much, I'm starting a new record label called Reclusive Records, and you're the first person I'm signing to my label. And I was like, excellent. You know, because he's the most powerful man in Australia's music industry, wants to work with me personally, right? It's not even just the mushroom, but it's his, his label. So we start getting excited. I go to his house. I'm signing my record deal on the family table that his parents brought out post-World War II as Jewish people fleeing Europe. Like, it's surreal. He's like, Kyle, he signed that at that table. And he's rattling all the names who have sat at that table. And I'm just like, this is amazing. Six months later, Michael died in his sleep. And um, when it happened, everybody was ringing me because I was the guy who knew him, you know. Like, oh, you know, what's this mean for your career? I didn't even care what it meant for my career. He was my mate. We used to text each other about the footy. He was a good dude. He was so generous. He was so kind. He was such a legend. And I was just sad. But a few weeks later, it hit me that the guy who's the most powerful person in this country who was helping me, wanting to work with me, has died. And what does that mean? And I went into a really sad time. Now, we all, we all struggle, you know. I don't need to tell you guys that. We all have times we struggle. And I don't know about you, but I have times, sometimes you're in the midst of it. I mean, I'll be really honest, this last three months I've been on tour, I've been away from my family a lot, driving 16,000 kilometres in a bus. It's been hard. There's been times you really struggle. Sometimes it feels like it's never going to end. It's overwhelming and you're suffocating. And what I've learned as I get to this age is you've got to sometimes, you've got to remind yourself it gets better because it always does. Sometimes you don't realise it's getting better. You wake up one day, you go, oh, that got better. You've got to remind yourself. So I wrote a song to remind myself. It's called Summer's Coming because it's a metaphor. I hate the winter, which is dumb because I live in Melbourne, right? But, oh, gosh, I hate it. I hate it. Anyone who pays money to go to the snow needs to be examined. Um, it is cold. It's wet. It's disgusting. And I find every single year, I'll be mid-July, August, I'm like, mate, this sucks. I hate it so much. But then I remember, in a few weeks, it'll be September. And then you can smell the flowers blooming, and it's getting warmer, and you remember Geelong are going to win more finals. It's usually. <laughs> so I wrote this song. It's called Summer's Coming to remind myself. Um, anyway, it goes like this. Putting on your warmest coat Cause you've been too numb to feel it all Colder than you've ever known You're praying you'll survive to see the dawn It's going round everywhere You're not the only one to feel it The seasons change if you just believe it Summer's coming again I know it's dark and the cold feels like it's never ending Just hold on a little longer The sunshine's coming You were getting stronger Days are getting warmer You want to move into the light that might burn you out because you care You want to live with open eyes But words will smash your heart everywhere It's going 
around everywhere You're not the only one to feel it It's winter now But I swear the seasons change If you just believe it Well, summer's coming again I know it's dark and the cold feels Like it's never ending Just hold on a little longer The sunshine's coming You were getting stronger Days are getting warmer It's going round and round and round I see it everywhere And no, you're not the only one who feels like No one cares I know you're down, you're down, you're down I see it everywhere Look to the sky, I swear it finally feels like Summer's coming again I know it's dark and the cold feels like it's never ending Just hold on a little longer, the sunshine's coming You were getting stronger Days are getting warmer You were getting stronger Days are getting warmer Summer's coming again Summer's coming again Thank you. Hey, so that song will be out this Thursday actually on... Spotify and Apple Music and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, I do just want to talk to you about the referendum just for a minute. And I know that people got different views. Um, but to preface what I'm going to say, I want to begin by saying that um, I don't have an issue which way you vote as long as you're educated. If you're sitting there going, if you don't know, vote no, then you need to stand in front of a mirror and have a good long hard look at yourself because you're a numpty. No offence. But it's not good enough. It is not good enough to sit there and go, well, I don't know, so I'm just going to vote. It's not good enough because we're talking about people's lives. I'm tired of people. And can I, be, can I be really honest with you guys? Is it all right if I just let my guard down and be really honest with you fellas here today? I've spent three months travelling around this country. But before that, I've spent 20 years travelling around this country, speaking in a lot of corporate places, a lot of schools, doing gigs. I am at the coalface of these issues and have been for the best part of 20 years. Now... When we led at the start of this year booking this tour, I have not got enough days in the week for schools that want me. I'm smashed with corporate places wanting me to speak into this stuff because this is my area of expertise. And the amount of churches I've rung saying, I don't want to come and tell you how to vote. I just want to come and educate you. Because here's the thing, education leads to understanding, understanding leads to empathy. Empathy is what brings change. Right, And the amount of churches and Christian organisations and spaces that have just gone, no, Scott, we don't want to be political. It makes me dead set want to spew up because this is not a political issue. This is a social justice issue. I've driven around this country and, you know, I had a bit of a breakdown when I got to WA, partly because my wife and kids weren't there, but also because I realised something. I went to a school. I haven't been there for a long time. And I rolled into the school and I realised the last time I was here, the things I talked about are 98% the same things that I'm talking about now. We have not changed in the 20 years since I've been doing this. Do you know that right now an Aboriginal man's life expectancy is nine years less yours? Except up here where it's closer to 20. 
North Queensland, NT, Northern West Australia. We are dying from preventable diseases. I go to funerals all the time. And suicide, biggest killer of young Aboriginal men. Do you know that right now, 65 to 70% of all Australian adults have finished year 12? So if you're walking down the main drag in Cairns today, you see 10 adults, 7 have finished year 12. On average, 5% of Indigenous people, 70% of everyone, 5% of our people have finished year 12. If you don't finish year 12, you can't go to uni. If you don't go to uni, you can't get a job as an accountant, a teacher, a lawyer, an engineer. When was the last time you guys had an Aboriginal teacher? Anyone have an Aboriginal teacher? Anyone have an Aboriginal accountant? Everyone have an Aboriginal doctor? Let's talk about role models. Anyone tell me, what do they say about a little boy who grows up witnessing domestic violence? What is more than likely going to happen to that kid? What happens to him? Do you know? There's more chance that he becomes like that. Now, I don't want to trigger anyone. I certainly don't want to upset anyone, but I want to break this down for just a second. Be really careful I say this. Um, my wife growing up, her dad was very violent. Now, my dad was a drunk, but he was never violent. But my wife's dad was very violent. And there are some stories that she shared with me about her childhood that I'll be honest with you, when she shares them, even just now recounting them to you, I get this knot here. And when you talk to her, it becomes really apparent she didn't just see domestic violence, she, she experienced it. And there's a real difference. And I can't understand how anybody who goes through what she goes, went through and knows firsthand the trauma, the pain, and how you could ever do that to your own kids knowing how bad it, it doesn't. There's no logic in that for me at all. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I mean, I read recently that pedophiles were often little boys who got sexually abused themselves. Did you know that? How does that happen? You're some little kid who has this disgusting thing done to you and it ruins you in a thousand ways. You know firsthand that it's ruined your entire life, but you still do it to a little kid knowing it's going to ruin their life. The reason those two things happen are because the stuff that we experience and see as a kid and a teenager, it gets into us in a way that's almost impossible to shake. And for you young people here today, I've got to tell you something, and this is awkward. You're not going to want to hear this in front of your parents, but you've got to be very careful what you look at on the internet. Because you're at an age where your brain is still shaping and forming. Your frontal cortex hasn't developed yet. And there is stuff that if you look at, it is going to damage you. And it's very hard to undo. You've got to be very careful. We've all got role models. Now, with that said, there's a whole generation of First Nations people in this country who do not know or are related to anyone who's finished school, been to uni, had a decent job. I meet kids all the time who truly believe, they can't articulate it, but in the pit of their stomach they believe, if I don't play AFL footy, I've got no future. Because the only role model they've seen escape a generation's deep poverty cycle is Eddie Betts. And imagine being an Aboriginal girl. Imagine that. Tomorrow, I'm going to be at a primary school here in Kansas. It's going to be amazing. Do you know where I'm going Tuesday? I'm going to Cleveland the Youth Detention Centre in Townsville, which is a maximum security prison for children as young as 10. And I want you to understand this. They are as young as 10, and they are in a 3 by 4 metre cell. The sheet's stitched onto the mattress. There's no toilet seat. That is so they can't hang themselves. There's a perspex window on the cell door. You're sitting on the toilet. You are getting looked at. You have no privacy. You're let out for breakfast. You have school on site. The teachers at the school are the most amazing teachers I've ever encountered. Their hearts are the size of Farlap. They finish school. They have one hour outside activity time, kicking the footy, playing basketball. But by 4.30 in the afternoon, they eat their dinner. They finish dinner, have a shower, put their pyjamas on. They have one hour of TV. They're locked up by 7. It's brutal. It is. Br- I laugh my head off when I go to some private school and the kids reckon they're tough because they wear their, f- their hats f- backwards on a free dress day, you know. Now, I went to this prison last year and I've been there every year for four years in a row. Right? And, and, and when you get there, I've got to be honest with you, when you hang out with kids in prison, they're good kids. Right? They're really good kids. They're better than a lot of the snotty in those private school kids you meet. And this one boy's been there every year in a row for four years. Now, when I went there last, there was 103 kids in the jail the day I was there. Just let this sink in. There was 103 kids there. 100 of them were Indigenous. We make up 3% of the population. 
a hundred out of a hundred and three kids. And I said to the principal, I said, why is there so many blackfellas in jail? Help me understand. Explain it like I'm nine. He goes, well, there's a lot of reasons. One of his role models. Now, your kids who are here today, I bet you they go to school every day. They don't probably don't think about why. They just put their uniform on, they rock up to school, they do their homework mostly. As they get older, they do it a bit more. Get there on time. They don't really think about why. It's because it's your normal expected pattern of behaviour. You know, parents went to school, their mates go to school, their siblings go to school. It's just what we do. Does that make sense? This kid, I've been there, right? Four years in a row, he's 17 by this stage. And I roll in and he's a songwriter. He sent me some lyrics that he'd written. Real good kid. Anyway, he sees me walk into the classroom. We get all excited. He says, Scotty, how you going, mate? I go, good, brother. How are you? He goes, I'm real deadly. I'm dread- I'm real deadly. I said, oh, why are you so excited? Are they finally releasing you after four years? Nah, soon I turn 18 and then I can go to the adult prison where my uncles are. And that's his expected pattern of behaviour. I said to the principal, why is there so many First Nations kids in Josh? He goes, a lot of it is role models, but a lot of them also deliberately reoffend. They come here on purpose because life at home is traumatic due to generational trauma. Now, I don't have time. A lot of you might have been here last time I spoke here and I gave you a history lesson. right? I don't have time to do that today, unfortunately. But I do want to say to you that nothing happens just because. Nothing ever happens just because. Right? There's no secret that we've got some real issues in Aboriginal communities with alcohol abuse, with drug abuse, with domestic violence and sexual abuse. Right? No one's saying that that's not happening. But can I just say to you, if I get one more well-meaning person come up to me and go, Scott, the worst thing we ever did for your people was give them alcohol. They can't handle it. I will dead set spew up. My father had started a PhD and run an alcoholic rehab centre, was not Aboriginal, but died of alcoholism. Can I tell you people, it is not gender, it is not race, it is not religion, it is trauma. It is tra- it's, all it is, it's trauma and sadness, and, and we are six generations, seven generations deep in it. Could you please just raise your hand if you are 56 years of age or older? In fact, I'm going to get you to stand up if you can, if your knees will allow it. <laughs> well, I love this bloke. Hey, all of you people who are look, still seated, look at these wonderful people. Give them a round of applause. No, really, give, give it up properly for them. Because these people bring so much wisdom and I just love older people. Don't sit down, I'm not finished with you. You guys are amazing. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being who you are for this community. It's amazing. But what I want to say to you guys, right, when we first became a nation, actually, you know, sit down, I know you're all tired. When we first became a country, right, and, and just so you know, history is very important. We never became a country until January the 1st, 1901. You need to know this. We did not become Australia until January the 1st, 1901. That's when Federation occurred, right? This whole argument about, oh, 1788, whatever, yeah, that, that was when they declared the colony of New South Wales, right? So all of you Reds Maroon supporters, I'm sure you love that. We officially became Australia January the 1st, 1901. It's like we were dating and then we got married. And... At that point, they said, let's write a constitution to govern this country. It's the most powerful law we have today, to this day, still the most powerful law. And what they did, they said, let's have a census. Let's count everybody. So I started count, 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 count. When they got to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they said, don't include them in the census, don't put them in the census, because when they first arrived in this country, what they believed at that time was if your skin was black, you're an animal. And that has been the starting point for our nation's history. If your skin's black, you're an animal. That's why so many of the things that have happened have happened. And what they did was they said, we need to include them in the Constitution somehow. So what they did was they put Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people into the flora and fauna section. Now, I know a lot of you probably know about this, you older people particularly, because you voted in that referendum in 1967. But for those who are not 56, I need you to understand something. While the people who just stood up, while they've been alive on this planet doing their thing, my mum's generation were told they weren't human. They weren't allowed to vote in an election. 
They didn't have the same basic human rights, healthcare, education. World War II Aboriginal soldiers returned for this country from fighting and defending our country and they saw every other soldier get given free houses that are now worth millions of dollars in suburbs that are very expensive in cities, except for the Aboriginal soldiers. Never got a... Can you imagine that conversation? Oh, I'm here for my free house. I just defended the country. No, you don't get one. But that fellow there got one and we're the same. I, we stood in a trench together and fought together. With us. Where's my house? No, he's human and you're not. Up until the 1980s, school principals of government schools, and I hate to tell you Queensland was the worst state, were allowed to deny enrolment based on Aboriginality if they felt like it. You could be an Aboriginal kid. No, you're not allowed to come here. We don't have black kids at this school. Into the 80s. We had stolen generation going on into the 80s. My two closest cousins are like my brothers. They were taken from their mum in country Victoria in Shepparton to a boy's home in Box Hill in Melbourne in the 1980s where some terrible abuse took place. There's so many things that I could tell you. We don't have time, but I've given you a tiny little snapshot. Right? Imagine a little girl who grows up in this country. She's a little Aboriginal girl and she grows up in this country with all the negative history. And you all know, you're not stupid. You know that you know the history of this country is not great, yeah? Can we acknowledge that? Imagine a little girl who grows up in that all that stuff happening to her and around her. She turns twenty. Do you reckon she's got the same outlook on life that you have? No? She's a bit broken, yeah? She has a kid and she loves that kid more than anything in the whole wide world. But she hasn't got the same ability to parent that kid in a healthy fashion that you probably do. And that kid is a double whammy because that kid grows up, she grows up with all that negative history happening to her and around her and a mum who's a bit broken. And then that kid has a kid and that kid has a kid. And all of a sudden we're six generations deep in trauma. And we start reading in the paper things that are happening in Alice Springs. And you know what breaks my heart is when I see the comments section and there's a thousand comments of just vitriol and hate. Now I'm going to finish shortly, but before I do I want to just make a really concise statement that I need you to listen to. If you live here and you call this country home you are no less Australian than I am as an Aboriginal man. Let me repeat that. If you live here and you call this country home, you are no less Australian than I am as an Aboriginal man. Because what makes this the greatest country on the planet is that we've always welcomed anyone that ever came here. Right? The amount of people that I meet, it drives me stupid to be honest. I will meet well-meaning white people. I shouldn't say white. Well-meaning non-Indigenous people. And they'll come up and they'll go, I went to an Aboriginal community for a week and now I've got a skin name because they've adopted me, you know which happens. You know why they get adopted? Because our people have always welcomed everyone who ever come here. We're all family. Doesn't matter where you're born, we're all family. For thousands of years, Mother Earth thrived, our people thrived, and we were welcomed by Mother Earth. Now, I did some research last year. I went on tour to England, and my daughter finished high school. I said, you can come on tour with me to England, or you can go to school this week, and she came with me on tour to England, not surprisingly. And we did some family tree research, because I knew my dad's family had come from Scotland. Now, what I found out was my dad, I'd got, I traced dad's family back to the 1500s in Scotland, 14, 15, late 1400s. Turns out one of my great-grandmothers, like times 14 or 15, she was the dead set, had a castle. She was a lady. I nearly lobbed up there in December, be like land rights. <laughs> anyway, we got it because dad's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was 15, his brother was 14. They went from St Andrews in Scotland to England to get jobs, couldn't find work. They got caught stealing fruit and they were transported to Tasmania for seven years as convicts. Now, I was thinking about that journey, right? The English would have looked at those two boys like they were total scum, less than human. They do their jail sentence. Like, because, you know, they're Scottish. They hate them because of that. They hate them because they're teenagers. They hate them because they're thieves. They do their jail sentence probably really hard. But when they finish it, and here's the key, Australia turns around and goes, you might be nothing in England, but you can be something here. And six generations, seven generations, I've got the greatest life ever because this country welcomed my family. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, is there anyone here who's Greek? Are we got any Greek people in the room? Nah, we're in Cairns. Um... <laughs> 
Do you know Melbourne has more Greek people living in it than any city in the world except for Africa, uh, except for Athens? Did you know that? Second, and we got heaps of Italians too because after World War II, all these people in Greece and Italy had nowhere to call home and Australia turns around and said, you, you, you got nowhere to call home? Come and be Aussies, just bring some Suvlakis and some pizzas with, thank God. In the 70s and 80s, all these people from Vietnam and Cambodia escaping war, Chinese people escaping communism, African people escaping war and famine. And let's be honest, every group of people that's come here has brought stuff that's made this country better. I had five days at home in the middle of my tour and it was like this oasis of fire. And Dana, my wife, she goes, what do you want to do on your one day off? I said, let's do my favourite activity, let's eat. Had yum cha for breakfast. You know Chinese food when they bring the trolley full of dumplings and they just keep bringing more trolleys? Lunchtime we had pizza because there's this one restaurant. Now I love pizza, probably a bit too much. I've got a sickness. Thinking about starting a pizza Instagram page of reviews. Anyway, best pizza I've ever had in the world was in Naples, Italy, sitting on a beach. In, it, was, it was almost a spiritual experience second best pizza I've ever had is a restaurant in Melbourne in Ligon Street called Papa Gino's Gino started in the 50s straight off a boat from Italy his three sons are now in their 60s and they run it we had pizza dinner time Dana my wife she goes we're going to have some, let's have some Indian curry how good's a curry yeah I was telling this story at a school the other day this one kid he looks at me he's like year nine he goes yeah because I go oh, I love the naan bread and this kid goes naan means bread you said you like bread bread <laughs> I was like you're adopted um, I mean he wasn't but whatever so we had Indian for dinner. And then 1am I couldn't sleep, but it's okay because Uber Eats brought me a Turkish kebab. <laughs> I went all over the world in 15... How good's Australia, yeah? How good is it? Now, not everybody sees it. I was in Mildura recently. If you know where Mildura... Anyone know where Mildura is? So you know there's a more racist town than... Anyway. Uh, I'm having lunch at a cafe outside. I'm on this table and next to me there was a couple of people that are married, men and wife. They're probably in their 70s. Two tables over, there's two Indian teenagers and they're having their lunch. I think they're Indian or Sri Lankan. They're about 14, 15. Anyway, old mate, husband... He's one of those older Australians who feels like everybody should hear every single thought he's ever had. And he's talking loud and he's carrying on. Starts complaining about the teenagers, real loud. Talks about their skin colour, drops the N-word. And then he looks at his wife, he goes, look at them, they're not even real Australians. He goes, they're not Australians, listen to those accents. He was so proud, he goes, I'm a real Australian, my family's been here six generations, I'm a real Aussie. Gee whiz, at that point my ADHD kicked in. Turned around and said, mate, you're not a real Australian, you're a muppet. He didn't love that. But I'm going to say to you what I said to him. Unless your parents are 100% Aboriginal in your bloodline, you are a boat person. I hate to tell you, you're a refugee. Unless your parents are 100% Aboriginal, you're a boat person. The only thing that separates any of us is time. And the arrogance and the stupidity of some dumb bogan, I've been here six generations, mate, I'm a real... Get stuffed. If you live here and you call this country home, you are no less Australian than I am as an Aboriginal man. And that is because what has made this the best country on the planet is that we have always welcomed anyone that's ever come here. So all of you fellas here today, I love seeing the colours in this room. Don't you ever let some dumb bogan make you feel less. It's awesome that you're here. Your families have made this country better. How good's Australia, yeah? All right. I want to explain to you that right now in this country we're going through this divide, everyone's shouting at each other, everybody's passionate, we've got this referendum happening. I want to say this to you, right? And I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but I'm going to tell you this. If you live here and you call this country, you're, you're Australian as I'm as Aboriginal man. Does that, does that make sense? Do you agree? We're all equally Australian. Do you agree with that? Yeah. All right. Most of us were taught that Captain Cook discovered this country. Put your hand up if you heard that. Do you know what the biggest problem with that lie is? A, I mean, my family have been here for thousands of years. B, the Chinese got here before him. The Dutch got here before him. He just rocked up. 
But the problem with that lie is that there's a lot of Aussies and they don't realise they're doing it. They run around this country and when they look in a mirror, they don't see a 65,000-year-old Australian looking back at them. You know what they see? They see a 253-year-old Australian looking back at them because Captain Cook got here 253 years ago. The word discovered means there's a part of our brain that subconsciously thinks if he discovered it, there's nothing here before him. Who here has been to New Zealand and noticed how much the Maori culture is a part of who they are way more than our Aboriginal culture here? That is because they signed a treaty in the early 1800s. They understand who they are generationally far better than we do. Can I say this to you, right? If we want to see change in Australia... How many of you felt uncomfortable when I shared my story about the, the prison in Townsville? Did you feel uncomfortable in your spirit? If you're uncomfortable at that and you want to make change, here's how you do it. Number one, you need to re-identify how you see yourself. You need to understand that you are a 65,000-year-old Australian. And if that's true, what it means is all of this story... All of this culture, all of this wisdom, all of this journey, it's yours. Now, not in the same way it's mine, but it is yours. You've been adopted. Think of it like this. We're a family. We've been adopted into the family. We're all family members. As a kid growing up, I never had grandparents growing up really around me. Like We, we were very fractured. and I used to be so jealous of the Greek kids because we had a lot of Greek kids in Melbourne and they'd come back to school talking about Greek Easter and they'd have grandma and grandpa, Popo and Yaya, right? And they'd have a big lamb spit and there's a hundred cousins and it just seemed like this beautiful environment of the grandparents who were almost like Yoda with their wisdom and their love and then all the cousins. And like any family, different people in different families have different roles and responsibilities. Does that make sense? As a family in Australia living here together, we're the same. Our Aboriginal elders, they're like the Popo and Yaya they're the grandparents. They have the wisdom, the story, and the journey. But you are still within that family. So here's the thing. If you can really get your head around this and respectfully, respectfully take your place within the family, what it means is you might pick up the paper and start seeing people comment underneath the Alice Springs stories. How sad that that's happening to my family. Who would choose to live this way? Why has it happened? No one would choose it. Why has it happened? How can I help bring healing to my family? We've got to change the way we self-identify. Got to change the way we self-identify. And that'll be a journey. You know, I can stand in front of 200 year 10 kids who are AFL crazy and I can ask them, who was Sir Douglas Nichols? And none of them will know. Do any of you guys know who Sir Douglas Nichols was? Put your hand up if you know who he is and what he did. Handful of you. If you don't know who he is, you need to find out who he is. He's an Australian legend. The AFL, and here's the thing, the AFL renamed their indigenous around the Sir Douglas Nichols now, Sir Douglas Nichols around several years ago. And yet we're so conditioned to anything indigenous being them. Didn't really happen, didn't really exist before seven oh, that's them, I don't need to worry about that. But if we change the way we think, all of a sudden it becomes our story. It becomes our journey, our pain, our trauma, and that's when we start to see change. That's the first thing I want to say to you. Now, the second thing, because I've got to finish, because it's lunchtime and everyone's going to throw stuff at me. If you're not prepared to actively want to bring change in this nation for First Nations people, you probably shouldn't be sitting in this room. So I know I've been really, I sound like I'm being real preachy and judgy here today, but I'm so sick and tired of Christians being the ones who drag the anchor on this. We should be at the front of the, we should be at the front of the, of the, of the queue. See, maybe I'm naive, but I read the scripture and there's this one bit where Jesus is hanging out with his 12 best mates. Actually 11 because one was a bit rubbish. And the Pharisees, you all know what a Pharisee is? You young fellas, you know what a Pharisee was? Pharisee was like, imagine a TV evangelist from America who's like, send all your money now, God's going to bless you. And, um, or Hillsong. And, um, sorry, that was my insight. Imagine a dodgy TV evangelist and imagine a corrupt politician, right? Put them together, you've got a Pharisee. And they're trying to get Jesus arrested and they ask him what they think is a trick question. And to me, this is the complete crux of the entire New Testament. 
they say, teacher, what's the most important commandment in the Bible? And Jesus, he looks at them and he just owns them. So good. He goes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. Now the Pharisees had used that commandment. They didn't necessarily believe it in themselves, but they used that commandment to extort, to get rich, to control society. They can't argue with it because they've hung their hat on it. He says, and they go, yes, that's true. And then Jesus said this sentence, as Christians, we often ignore this sentence, but the second sentence he says is so important. He says, the second is like it. The second is like it. What I'm about to tell you is as important as loving God. He puts it that high on his tree. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the other words of all the other prophets, all the other commandments hang on this. Forget about all that other stuff. Everything hangs on this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Wowee, that's hard, isn't it? I've had so many churches when I ring them up and I go, hey, I want to come and talk about Aboriginal culture and disadvantage and I want to make a difference for this country. And they go, Scott, that's great, but what we want to, we can't really do that because we've got, a, we've got a missions focused in Southeast Asia. And that's awesome that they do. But I sit there and, and I said to this one pastor, I said, well, don't pray for revival. Don't you dare pray for revival because God's given you a whole backyard and you're not worried about it. Why on earth would you think he's going to give you more if, he's not, if you're not worrying about the bit he's already given you? If you are sitting here today calling yourself a follower of Jesus and you are not passionately advocating for your First Nations neighbours who are your family because we're all family living here together, then you are not doing it right. And I am sorry if that makes you feel uncomfortable, but I'm not sorry. Because when you get in front of him, he's not going to ask you how you're tithed. He's not going to ask you if you played on the worship team. He's going to go, did you love your neighbour? Because that was what I told you was the most important thing. So I want to encourage you that we, we need to move forward as a nation and um, we've got to get fed to him about it. And I really do believe this. I think if every single church in Australia, regardless of denomination, if they all put their heads together and they came up with, with a plan to effectively love their First Nations communities, I'd be out of a job in 10 years. It would have happened. So I guess that's really what I wanted to share with you, that things are dire, but I feel like we can make a difference and we're at a point in our history, this is so important that we can make a difference going forward. I really believe it. I really believe that we can make a difference. And I'm hoping that in 20 years' time when I'm on tour again as an old man, singing to the old, you know, morning melodies at the pokies, that I'm not telling the same stories that I was 20 years ago now. I really, I'm praying desperately that that's not the case. Um... Finally, I just want to say one thing. Have you guys, I don't know that some of this has been really hard to hear, but have, have you guys enjoyed hanging out with an Aboriginal man today? Honestly? Have you enjoyed hearing my stories? Honestly? Okay, that's all we want for our politicians. That is all we want. Please don't believe that you're going to lose your backyard. It's not true. All, right? all we want is for our politicians to get the opportunity that you've had here this morning. Most of them have never hung out with an Aboriginal person. And let's be really honest. How many times, like I'm a spokesman for a charity called World Vision. You all know World Vision? Yeah, do you know they do amazing work in Aboriginal communities? Yeah, a lot of you don't know that. They do. Now, me and Hugh Jackman, both World Vision artists, no big deal, whatever. <laughs> do you know how many times NGOs, not just World Vision, but do you know how many times non-for-profit organisations have an amazing program running in a community and then all of a sudden the government changes and the new politician comes and goes, I'm not going to fund that program anymore because it's not my program. Do you know how often that happens? Unfortunately, we can't trust politicians. That's why this needs to be enshrined in the Constitution because you can't trust them. I said to a bunch of, I was talking about this, I got asked by a bunch of year 12 students at Ivanhoe Girls Grammar during the week, it was very fancy. And they said, they'd ask me about the voice, and I said, well, if I come to your school at Ivanhoe Girls Grammar, and I said, right, the school have got me in here, and I'm going to come and change your school canteen menu, right? I'm not going to ask any of you what you want, I'm just going to put tofu burgers on it, and 
and some of them looked like they were going to murder me. <laughs> I said, would you want me to do that or would you want me to ask you what you want on the menu? Well, of course we want to get asked. Hopefully I'm making sense here. Anyway, I'm going to finish. Um, thank you guys for having me. I'm going to be hanging out. If you've got any questions at all, please come. I would love to answer every question you've got about any of this stuff. If there's anything you've ever wanted to ask an Aboriginal person, don't be embarrassed. Come up and say hello. Ask. I've got some records for sale. Um, I really, and I say this from the bottom of my heart, I'm so grateful for you letting me come here and speak with you today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real privilege and an honour for me to share this space with you. God bless you guys. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much. We're going to finish the service there. Let me encourage you. Go and have a chat with Scott. Albums, stuff for sale. Have a chat. Have a talk. Um, Otherwise, have a chat with each other. Have a talk. Let me pray. And then we're going to spend some time in community together. Lord God, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for Scott's honesty. We thank you for his integrity. And God, we thank you for his vulnerability. And Lord, we thank you that he had this time to come and speak with us. And so God, we just thank you for that. Lord, we pray for him as he continues the tour, as he continues to speak. Lord, we pray for him as he continues to talk to kids and changing hearts and minds. So God, we thank you for that. We pray for soft hearts and soft minds where he goes to speak. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that we find unity in you. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Matt, there is an opportunity to do a special offering as well for Scott, and that's at the info desk straight after the service. So please go up and have a talk to those guys, and they'd love to do that for you. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your day.